as we look into the Word. Our Father, as we have the extreme privilege of examining the Scriptures, we, along with the disciples, recognize our need for you to teach us, to help us make sense of them, to help them become not just words on dusty pages that are merely historical words, but Lord, that they are words of life, words that are active and alive, words that penetrate our hearts, words that point us to Christ, words that touch our hearts to humble them and to motivate them and to bring us to the point of surrendering to Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would have your way among us, that you would use your word and I pray, Lord, that you would uh, guide me as we speak and work our way through this text this morning. And, uh, Lord, that you would help us to recognize you for who you really are, the one who is in supreme position of power and glory and honor. And there is none equal to you, and therefore we need to give our careful attention to what you say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back a few years ago to... 1999, there are two teams assigned to a task of putting into orbit around the planet Mars, a Mars Climate Orbiter. This is not the rover that actually landed, but this is before all that. This was just to be a spaceship that circled around Mars. So here we have team number one working on this at Lockheed Martin Aeronautics. They are designing and they are in charge with building this particular spaceship. There's another team, team number two. They are the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They are in a different location. Their job is to work through the actual navigation and the, the uh, overseeing the, the actual flight once it gets launched from the launch pad. So you have two teams. So we have a launch, successful launch. We have nine months of travel time so that this spaceship actually travels from Earth to Mars, covering 461 million miles. And they find the planet Mars, which is amazing. And so here this approach of this spaceship comes, satellite really is what it's supposed to be, and it's supposed to go into orbit around Mars. And the spacecraft apparently is off track. It went too deep into the atmosphere of Mars, and therefore, if you get too close, what happens? You get drawn in by the gravitational pull. Next thing you know, this spaceship crashes before it even makes one orbit around the planet Mars. Question, why? What went wrong? What is it that happened that this can happen that, that something as sophisticated as this would then crash land, not even orbit around the planet it was sent to go around. Lots of questions, lots of looking around for answers, and guess what they came up with? This is true story, folks. You can Google it, find out yourself. Team number one, the folks from Lockheed Martin, had done all their calculations, all of their estimations were done in English measurements. That is, inches feet, pounds, all those kinds of things. And the folks at JBL, the, the uh, 
the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, they had done all their calculations. When they got the orders as to what should happen for acceleration, they turned them into the metric system of meters and millimeters and all those kind of things. The two different groups were not on the same page. They had a major error that developed, and guess what? $320 million later, after all that work, ended in nothing but a crash land. It's important to be on the same page in order to have a successful mission. And that, I believe, is the backdrop of what is happening at the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus Christ has spent three years preparing his apostles, his disciples that he has hand-selected, and he is in, in, about to, ready to leave his earthly ministry and say, okay, I'm handing it off to you. Here is the ministry that I want you to be carrying out on my behalf of taking the gospel to all the world. He huddles these guys together and he wants to make sure they're on the same page, that they are in agreement with what it is they're supposed to be doing. This is critical. For there to be a lasting gospel impact, Jesus' followers need to be adequately and fully prepared, what? To start well, so that what? So that it would end well. Because if they start on the wrong assumption, then the problem is it will become evident as time goes on and eventually they will not carry out the wishes of their master and we could have a real disaster on our hands. So in the opening section here of Acts chapter one, we're gonna look at verses six to 11 and in this passage of Scripture, we're going to see there are a number of critical issues that are now going to be clarified regarding the kingdom of Christ. Three areas Jesus is going to make sure to clarify before he sends them out to this brand new era of gospel ministry. The follow along now as we read Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, that's the apostles, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time... You are restoring the kingdom to Israel? That's a very important question. And here we're going to find that in that question are these issues being raised. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, again, I'm trying to say uh, there's a lot packed into here. I'm going to try to just develop it into three areas in which Jesus is trying to clarify what his kingdom is all about before he sends them out. And the first area I would suggest to you is he clarifies the nature of, of his kingdom, the nature of his kingdom. Jesus speaks again and again and again in his earthly ministry, whether it's before his death on the cross or after his resurrection from the dead, 
Clearly, one of his topics that he goes to again and again is his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And during this instructional period, his disciples have heard a lot, but they still have not figured out and put together all the pieces of what that kingdom is going to be like in light of this very critical development that Jesus has just talked about in verse 5, in which he talks, verse 4 and 5 of Acts 1, in which he talks about there's the giving of the Spirit of God that's going to change the nature of the kingdom in, how, in terms of the promise that the kingdom will really begin to, to start taking hold and have an effect in the world. And so there's a, some, some confusion here, and the confusion is evidenced by the question they ask in verse 6. And so Jesus gives three corrections now to this question. Someone has said, <laughs> I think it was John Calvin said this, regarding this question, he says, there are, many, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. In other words, they just have numbers of issues here that need to be clarified and corrected regarding the kingdom and gospel ministry. And the first is this. You'll notice he says, uh, the first word that, that sort of conveys there's a problem in their confusion is the word restore. Verse 6, he says, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, they assume that Jesus is going to develop a kingdom that's primarily what? They're going to say the kingdom is primarily political. It's a territorial kingdom because that's what Israel had been in the past. And so number one, uh, letter A in your notes there is Jesus is going to say, no, it's not going to be a territorial political. It's going to be a spiritual kingdom. Spiritual kingdom, not territorial. Point A. You see, during Jesus' earthly ministry, the disciples kept waiting on this carrying out of Jesus' messianic role as a ruler, as a king, as someone who has great authority in the political realm, they thought, and that Jesus would eventually overthrow the Roman occupation. They had many visions in their minds as disciples of Jesus. They kept waiting for that time in which they thought, soon will be that moment when Jesus will finally take on all of this political power that's uh, 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 oppressing us. And they expected Jesus to exert his divine rule over these corrupt political powers. And that he would overthrow those who had oppressed the people of God for so long. Now, this assumption, if it not, was not corrected, would do what? Would launch the disciples into the wrong direction. It would indicate, again, they're on the wrong page here. They're not on the same page with Jesus. So here it's very helpful to understand Jesus is trying to correct some of these things. And Jesus assures these men, based on what he says in verses 4 and 5 and what he says in verse 8 of Acts 1, is that the kingdom of Christ is one in which the Holy Spirit is going to set up that rule in people's hearts. It's the Spirit of God working on people's hearts. And that is the way in which you're going to see Christ reigning and ruling and beginning to change the world as he begins to change hearts of individual people. And so it's between that moment 
when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and Christ's second coming, that this kingdom will be spread by what? By the gospel of the cross. It will not be spread by necessarily congressmen or kings or people who are political uh, entities. What Jesus is saying in this text to make sure his disciples understand is that the kingdom that he has will never be established, nor will it ever be accomplished by the Republican Party nor the Democrat Party. It's important that we understand that. I think too many Christians over the years have looked to one particular party to enact certain laws, and therefore they think that in doing that, that is the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way it works. It's not going to happen in the political realm. Now, does that mean that we should have nothing to do with our influence in political realm? I'm not saying that, no. Christians should be salt and light, absolutely. But what I'm saying to you is that Jesus' kingdom is not centered in Albany. Jesus' kingdom is not centered in Washington, D.C. Jesus' kingdom is not centered in Rome or even New York City or whatever big place where people with great power and influence live. Here's my, here's my correction, I think, that Jesus is trying to make. He's saying, listen, the kingdom of Christ is most visibly seen through the local churches who are involved in spreading the gospel among person to person and around the world, and that is the way in which the kingdom is spreading as the gospel is applied to individual hearts by the Holy Spirit and their lives are changed. That's a hopeful message, my friends, because let me tell you, political attempts to expand the kingdom of Christ have failed again and again and again, and they always will. Because that is not the way the nature of Christ's kingdom is spread. Secondly, letter B, the nature of Jesus' kingdom is international, not national. And this is where they raise the question, is he restoring the kingdom to Israel? Israel is the main emphasis in their minds here. They think of the nation of Israel. Now, we need to be patient with these people because, let's be honest, they are Jews who have been raised in a Jewish culture in which they have read and studied the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. They've been taught that Israel was indeed the exclusive focal point of the kingdom. As well, They assumed that, the, that Israel was the exclusive focal point of the kingdom. For all those years, they kept thinking it's Israel who are the chosen people alone. As if that was the end of all that God was trying to do was to merely bless Israel. But, of course, Jesus is trying to expand these nat nationalistic horizons. He's trying to push the boundaries of what they're thinking about to be far beyond just Israel. Because isn't it true, if you jot these down, you look at them more carefully, Isaiah 42, 6 talks about Israel being a light, appointed to be a light to the what? To the world. It was never meant to be a blessed nation only as unto itself. It was always to be a blessed, blessed nation so that they might bless the whole world. Isaiah 49, 6, I will also make you, God says, a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He's not merely just wanting to bless Israel. He wants to bless the whole earth through Israel. 
So when we come to verse 8 of Acts 1, it's no surprise that Jesus goes on to explain his intention that his disciples not just focus on Israel and not be absorbed with the national entity of Israel alone, but he's encouraging them to now beyond expand their horizons. Notice that the God's burden and kingdom is going to include all of the nations of the earth to the four corners of the earth, as he says, the remotest part of the earth. Jesus here is making it known that his intention is that the gospel mission of the church is to be an international endeavor. It's not merely focused on one favored nationality. Here's a good way to put it, if you want to put it in one sentence. The church's mission is local and global. That's a nice way of balancing it out, right? So that, yes, we are concerned with showing that the church is on mission here where we are. The church is located in a particular geographical area, the local church, yes. And so that's why in the book of Acts we begin to see how this works in the structure of the book. And I don't want to belabor this point. I think I talked about it last week. But if you try to break up the book of Acts into three sections, you'll notice chapters 1 to 7 show the church which began in Jerusalem expands out into Judea, which is the surrounding area right around that particular city. And that's the first seven chapters. Most of the action takes place right there, Jerusalem and Judea, primarily made up of Jewish people. But then in chapters 8 to 12 of the book of Acts, the concentric circles of expanding out further, the gospel moves northward into Samaria, which crosses over an area where there is tremendous racial tension. There is animosity that runs deep. People who hate each other, don't want to have anything to do with each other, who will walk way out of their way to avoid people that they despise. And the gospel moves into that area, and we begin to see someone coming to Christ out of those who have always hated the Jews and Jews who've hated them. And then as we continue on through the rest of the book, chapter 13 to the end of the book, chapter 28, we find, again, the gospel moving further out than even just Samaria. It moves to the expansive corners of the earth in Cyprus, Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, and Rome, and boom, boom, boom. It just keeps going outward, outward, outward. You can tell how Jesus wanted to make sure, listen, we're not just interested in focusing on Israel here. We're interested in focusing on all the people groups of the earth. I think we need to keep hearing that message. God is not just concerned about the United States. We tend to become very focused on our little part of the world and our nation and things that have to do with us, the U.S. and us. But God is a God of the nations. He's not an American God. And therefore, it's important to always bear in mind that when we're praying and when we're involved in mission, we understand that mission is going to take the gospel beyond where we live among people who are like us to people who are different from us, who live under different political systems, who live under different language and cultural backgrounds. The gospel is going forward, and we need to be a part of all that as well. And so that's why our church supports ministries among people in all sorts of ethnic 
situations and cross-cultural situations in Japan and, and in, uh, in South Sudan and, and uh, in places, Bangladesh and places that are far different than where it is here. Why? Because we are part of what God is doing to make sure the gospel goes to all the peoples of the earth. Is God concerned for a mission in Long Island, New York? Absolutely. Are there great needs here? Absolutely. Unbelievable extensive, extensive needs here, spiritually speaking. But God is also concerned with places like Beijing or Bangladesh or Bamako in Mali. So the point here is, again, we need to be careful that we not become focused on one nation, but think of the church as international in its focus and nature. Letter C. Then we get to the phrase in verse 6, which again is troublesome, in which they ask the question, is it at this time? Is this the time, Jesus? which you're going to do all these things that we're asking about, restoring and to Israel. It has to do with timing. And my way of summarizing this is to say that Jesus is going to correct him by saying, the kingdom is going to expand. The nature of the kingdom is it's going to be gradual, not immediate. They're looking for an immediate, tremendously powerful change. They're thinking that the kingdom of God was going to be established immediately rather than in a slow, progressive, gradual way. How many of you have traveled with children on a long trip in your car? Yes, we've survived those things. And you'll know that kids oftentimes have no way of understanding the length of time it takes to get from point A to point B. I remember one time years ago, we lived in Massachusetts and we drove from there Actually, I'm sorry, we were in Virginia at the time. We drove with our three children to um, Hilton Head, South Carolina. And we we're having a family reunion with my family. And no, we, just, we barely crossed over the border into North Carolina. And I remember our son Jonathan saying, hey, Dad, when are we going to get there? I'm thinking, oh, boy, this is going to be a long trip. Dad, when are we going to get there? Are we almost there? And... As you know, uh, there was that's probably about a ten-hour trip, and so, what do you say? What do you say to a kid? Here was my answer: Only God knows. I'm not going to give you a time. And he had no time anyway. He couldn't understand that. He's still a young young kid. Only God knows when we'll arrive at our destination. Guess what? He kept asking that question probably every twenty minutes for about six hours. It seemed like. And, and, we find, and guess what? He finally went to sleep about the time we rolled up to the place in Hilton Head. And we said, hey, we're here. He goes, oh, that didn't seem very long. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're all just dying with how many times we were asked that question. Here's what I think God's trying to tell his disciples. In Christ, he's trying to tell them this. There are certain th boundaries of time for big events in God's timetable for redemptive history. There are these times and epochs. God has set them. He doesn't always tell us all the details of when those things are going to happen. But what he's given us is certain parameters. So that's why I like the story of my answer. Only God knows when these things are going to take place at the end. We don't, we don't know when Christ is coming back. 
see? But we do know when the church was started, it was started at Pentecost, which we're going to read about here in the next chapter of Acts 2. That was the birth of the church, but we don't know exactly when the end will come when Christ comes back. But we do know he's coming back. We just don't know exactly when. The point is, in the meantime, we are to be on mission. In the meantime, we're to keep being involved in taking and making sure the gospel continues to go outward to those who need to know Christ. And we need to be involved in carrying out the task that Christ has sent the church to do, and that is to bear witness to Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his coming again. So those are very important corrections that our Lord Jesus gave to his disciples so that what? They'd be on the same page. Are you on the same page with Christ when it comes to the nature of his kingdom? Or are you working against his, his kingdom in our own sort of self-focused ways that sometimes if we're not careful and understand how he works, we're seeking our kingdom and maybe instead of seeking his kingdom. Well, let me move on. Another clarification that comes in this passage of scripture is that uh, there's a clarification regarding the expansion of Jesus's kingdom, the expansion or spread of the kingdom. You know, you think about the Romans, if you've studied Roman civilization, you, are, you certainly should know that they were master road builders. And one of the things that improved the quality of life and the amount of commercial trade and, and, um, and commercial enterprises that went on in Rome was the fact they had these fascinatingly, incredibly complicated engineering projects they were able to pull off, building on unbelievable buildings and bridges, and then these roads. Along with all these wonderful advancements that came with Rome, those of you who were the Jews who lived under their dominion, they had to deal with oppressive taxes. They had to deal with widespread idolatry, temples to the Roman gods all over the place. And ultimately, it came to a a, a peak in terms of the tension and the difficulty of dealing with Rome when they came with the Roman cult of emperor worship, where the emperor would have this imperial cult where he would demand that people acknowledge that he is God, confess him as Lord, as God over all. Well, as Rome continued to expand, it expanded through what? well-trained, highly disciplined soldiers. It is the Roman army that enforced that peace. It's the Roman army that would come down on you if you in any way uh, had any kind of disloyalty to the Roman Empire. Boy, they would just take care of you in a moment. And Jesus insists in this text of Scripture that the kingdom of God is not going to follow that pattern. Jesus' kingdom is not spread by warfare with soldiers. It's spread by what? Verse 8, witnesses. Witnesses. Jesus is involved in raising up evangelists, raising up preachers, raising up courageous Christians who will declare to others what they saw, what they knew to be true. Isn't that what witnesses do? They go into a court of law and they say, okay, what did you see on that day? 
And what did you say on that day? What did this person say? And they just have them recount what they experienced, what they saw, what they know to be true. It is these spirit-filled witnesses that would find themselves repeating again and again an unpopular message in the face of strong opposition among many in that first century. And that's why the interesting the word witness there in verse 8 is the word in Greek from which we get the word martyr. The word in Greek is martyreo, the Greek to bear witness, and then the word we get in English is the word martyr. Why is that? Because the one who gives the ultimate witness, the one who gives the witness and, and pays the ultimate cost, is the one who bears witness even unto death. That is, I am bearing witness to a truth that I'm not going to back down on. It is true no matter what you do to me and no matter what you say. And if you go through church history, you will find an amazing, long account of people who are faithful witnesses even unto death including such people as Polycarp. How many of you have ever heard of Polycarp? Several of you have. Good for you. Uh, at the age of 86, probably one of the last people who may have uh, seen the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. He has faithfully served Christ as a leader in the early church for many years. Christ has uh, died and ascended, and now this is uh, years later. And so in the first century, Polycarp is being opposed by more and more people in the community in which he lives for his faithfulness to the gospel. They are persuading him, the local official there and the Roman official, to sacrifice to the gods. He refuses to do that. He refuses to deny Christ. And in the face of this pressure, of the fa in face of, in facing uh, the fact that all the threats that they're bringing against him, he stands up and he makes this statement publicly. He says, 86 years have I served Christ nor has he ever done me harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless you. He's talking to the Lord now. He says, I bless you for deigning me or, or allowing me to be worthy of this day and this hour that I may be among your martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. At the age of 86, Polycarp was burned at the stake as a witness, as a martyr for the cause of Christ. And he and a long list of others, if you look at the book of Acts, you will soon discover Stephen there in chapter 7. And then you find uh, uh, um, many others. You find James, chapter 12, who's beheaded. And there's uh, countless others. Paul, of course, is running into the polit into political powers. Eventually, he is, his life is taken from him. And if you fast forward through all the years of church history, which, again, I would urge you to, to Google sometime Christian martyrs and begin to read about some of their stories that will enrich your, your heart and life. You get into the 20th century and you get into people like um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was living in the United States as a German scholar and theologian, and ministering here, and then he went back to Germany to, to oppose the Nazis, knowing full well what? He was going to be eventually silenced because he was exposing them for who they were, and he indeed was shot and killed as a martyr for Christ. It is now just the 60th anniversary back a month ago, or not even a month ago, in January 1956, 
five young men killed by the Alca Indians in Ecuador, in the jungles of Ecuador. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian. These are names I hope you've heard of. These are people who took their stand for Christ. They had the means to defend themselves. They had arms with them, but they had already agreed beforehand. If we are attacked by these brutal people that they knew they had very violent history, if we're attacked, we were willing to die because we know we're going to heaven, but we're not going to kill them because they're not ready for heaven. They need to know Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing. I wish I could give you many more stories, but I'm not going to take the time to do that. But the point, my point I'm trying to make here is that Christian witness is a powerful, powerful means of helping the gospel spread. They say that it's the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. As martyrs are killed, there are people who are impacted by that martyrdom, who see the courage, who see the love for Christ, who see the unwillingness to go back on what they've said, lay down their lives like their Savior did. Indeed, if you look at the book of Acts, you, you see the opposition against the Apostle Paul again and again as he speaks to crowds, and the crowds take it in their own hands to say, we've got to silence this guy. They're stoning him. Acts 14. And in their attempts to silence him, eventually he's arrested. He appeals and says, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. And so he appeals before one after another of all these political rulers, and he's giving his testimony. He's telling his story. He's giving out the gospel. It's amazing. That's what the book has tremendous amount of content devoted to the witness of those who eventually, uh, who many of them ignored that witness and uh, eventually martyred him. What's the point here? I'm trying to help us grapple with the fact that there's a cost to being a witness for Christ. There's a cost. I believe that Luke is trying to emphasize in this book of Acts that faithful witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ can be and often will involve suffering. As a matter of fact, that theme is also expanded in 1 Peter where he says doing the right thing, that is honoring Christ, declaring Christ as to who he declaring the gospel and living an upright moral life that honors Christ will mean oftentimes you suffer for doing that. People become offended at how you could come across in ways in which you refuse to compromise what other people think is normal and clearly something they want you to conform to. Here's my point. Jesus never intended his kingdom to spread by force or coercion. He is empowering by the Holy Spirit witnesses. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through the simple and, yes, fallible, and oftentimes we fail in our ability to get our words together and make sense of the gospel maybe sometimes. We don't seem to uh, handle that witness too well, but it is, that is God's method is to use fallible, imperfect people through whom the Holy Spirit begins to make known the gospel. An expansion of Jesus' kingdom is not by a sword. It's not by violent means of intimidation and threats of prison. That's not the way the kingdom expands. And clearly that's why the Crusades was such a horrible uh, chapter of 
church history, although I would say many of the parties involved were not Christians, although they were associated with uh, churches, they would say, leaders of the Roman Catholic Church and different ones. There's no biblical justification, of course, for conquering lands, murdering civilians, and destroying uh, various uh, people, nations, in the name of Christ. There's no justification for that as to think that that is gospel ministry. That's not gospel ministry. What did Jesus say? Look at John 18. Let's just take a second look at Jesus' statement in John 18. He gives another very helpful way of helping to make clear the nature of his kingdom. A couple pages back, John 18, verse 36. Here's the Roman governor, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, asking Jesus about this whole idea of his, his kingdom. And here's, here's what Jesus says. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, that is just like the Roman Empire, all about obtaining lands and doing it by force and all that stuff, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jew. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. What's he saying? He's saying that his kingdom is not like the Roman Empire. It's not like any other earthly kingdom. Human empires are preserved and expanded by fighting and killing with armies. And Jesus himself has shown what battling is involved. He battled against spiritual forces of evil. It is Jesus who conquered sin, conquered death, conquered hell. How? By laying down his life. By surrendering himself in helplessness and weakness. And it's his truth is what's going to bring about the change of the world. It's the truth of the gospel that is the powerful force of seeing change brought in people's hearts. And the kingdom is expanding then by the power of the Holy Spirit, using the word of God that is lived out and proclaimed by the people of God. And that's why it's so important for us to see the distinction and the contrast in today's world that gospel witness is not carried out by platoons of radical soldiers carrying out jihadist attacks against infidels. That is not the Christian faith. Jesus' kingdom is spread with what? A message that's not necessarily of just persuasive words of wisdom, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It is a kingdom that is expanding because of the demonstration of the Spirit, the demonstration of power, so that each convert's faith rests upon what? Not the wisdom of men, but on the power of God in the gospel as each individual person is confronted with Christ. And I don't have a whole lot of time to expand on this, but I would just again commend to you, look at the, at the person of Charles Colson, Chuck Colson, a political hack man. They called him the hatchet man back in the Nixon administration. He was a person willing to do anything, compromise any area of, of um, ethical things in order to accomplish the greater political good. And he at, at some point uh, was caught up in doing some things that were inappropriate. And so he pleaded guilty obstruction of justice, served a prison time, I think like seven or eight months of a three-year term. But in the process 
leading up to that crumbling of his political world, the Holy Spirit using the gospel shared with him by a, a very well-known businessman at the time, sat down and confronted him with the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life was changed through the gospel, and as his heart was changed, guess what? His whole perspective was changed. His whole view of how he dealt with criminals and his view of jails, his view, his whole world was turned upside down so that he became a person who was mightily used by God to bring about reform in the imprisoned system all around our nation and around the world. It's an amazing transformation story of Chuck Colson. What's the point here? It's not about politics. It's not about armies. It's about people using the gospel and seeing people's hearts changed in a way that shows the supremacy of God. And that leads me to my third point. You still with me? There's a lot here. Sorry, I have, I'm trying to summarize the best I can. Point number three here. This leads us to the part of the text in which we have verses uh, 9 through 11, in which there's this amazing phenomenon of Jesus being raised up from them into the cloud, and he departs, and there's an explanation by these angels who come. Here's the third point. In this point we have a clarification of the supremacy of Jesus' kingdom. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about it. At the time in which Jesus is leaving, what does his kingdom look like? Man, oh man, it's not very impressive. What you got is a band of people who are very different from each other. It's not very impressive when you compare it to the size and scope of this Roman Empire. And so Jesus is reminding them in this dramatic fashion of who he is. He is the one who is supreme over all. I don't think that comes through too clearly to us in this culture when you think about, okay, well, this body, this person just goes up in the sky. We don't get it, I don't think, but I think his first century disciples did because they saw how Jesus was treated by the Roman system, the Roman Empire. He was mocked. He was treated with great injustice. He was rejected as a person who's irrelevant, ridiculous in his claims. And there's no denying that he was subjected to this brutal death on the cross, a, a tool of shame and disgrace for the worst of criminals. But three days afterwards, my friend, after he died, he was raised from the dead. He is alive and he is the victorious conqueror over death. His power is greater than the most powerful political person and force on this earth. And therefore, there is, he is not this mere mortal. He is the king of kings. He is God in human flesh. That is the whole point of the cloud that surrounds him. It's not just the fact that he kept going up into, into where he, you know, he got up into the high stratosphere. No, the point is that he was enveloped by this cloud in a very dramatic fashion to, to associate the fact that in the Jewish mind, they know the long history of reading in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, the cloud represents God. It was the cloud on the top of Mount Sinai. It was the cloud that led the people of God to the children of Israel. It's the cloud that says this is, this is the presence of God here. It was a way of saying Jesus is divine. He's just not merely an earthly king. He is the king of kings. Okay, so here's my point. Therefore, his resurrection and ascension bore witness to Jesus' worthiness. 
He is supreme. He deserves our loving obedience. He deserves our loyal allegiance. Look at the end of Mark's gospel, if you just would, just for a second. Turn to the end of Mark, Mark's gospel, verse six, chapter 16, verse 19. Very interesting quote here that Mark weaves into his final word there about Jesus. As he quotes and alludes to Psalm 110, which is a messianic prophecy, verse 19 of the 16th chapter of Mark's gospel. He says, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to his apostles... He was received up into heaven, okay, and sat down at the right hand of God. What's that supposed to say? He's saying that Jesus is the supreme ruler who possesses all authority, and therefore he is exalted to the highest, most supreme position of honor by God the Father. There can be no other higher position you can have in all the universe. So that Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus was what? Crowned with glory and honor. Philippians 2 says that God highly exalted Jesus. And re he received the name that's above every other name. That is, there is no one who is greater than Jesus Christ. And therefore, Jesus is worthy of our labors to build his kingdom. That's why... When Jesus, as one who is seated in the supreme position of exaltation, we can be completely confident that his work of redemption was absolutely sufficient. He finished it victoriously, completely, and exactly as the Father wanted. Nothing can be added to what Jesus accomplished in supplying us our salvation. And therefore, as one who is supreme and the one who has successfully accomplished those things, his kingdom is therefore not this kind of passing fad. It's not like some fading empire. And by the way, have you not seen in history, the empires are great in their heyday, and then what happens? They decline. They go into the dust of history, dustbin of history. Not the kingdom of Christ. His kingship is still in force. He enjoys the position of greatest glory and honor, and one day, and that's the point of this text right here, Acts 1, one day he's coming back. One day he's going to bring his people into the full consummation in which, yes, there will be an earthly kingdom one day. There will be this unbelievable reigning of righteousness from shore to shore. It will happen someday. And on that day, we will share in that glory. All his people will share in his kingly rule. But until that day, we're not to just stare and look at the heavens and say, boy, I just can't wait for him to return. It's going to be so great. Oh, can't wait. And just cross our arms and look at the sky and say, I'm just waiting and do nothing. Just staring, daydreaming of better days. No, the whole point of the word from these angels was to what? We are to be his witnesses. By the power of the Spirit of God carrying out the mission of Christ to make known the gospel, to disciple people. And therefore, you say, well, it, it really wears you out. It's hard. It's difficult. It's not really 
as welcoming as I would like. There's a lot of opposition. There's a lot of danger in doing this. There's a lot of difficulty involved in, in, in this kind of effort, you know? The point is what? Jesus is worthy of our service. Jesus has died. He's bought you and redeemed you if you're his own. And therefore, he has been shown to be a person who has successfully completed that. And therefore, who are we to defy his authority and say, well, I don't think I'm going to carry out the mission that you've asked me to do. I got other things I'm going to do. That doesn't jive. That's not what? That's not being on the same page. If we understand the nature of the kingdom. If we understand the nature of the kingdom, Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples of all nations. And how do we do that? Through the local church, baptizing and teaching. And so we're to follow Christ's command. Take the gospel to every corner of the world. We're to join him in his worldwide mission to see souls saved. And what happens then? Well, in the meantime, we don't just stand there with our arms folded. We get in there and we get involved in people's lives. We pray, we give, we send people forth into ministry, and we open our mouths, although we might be filled with fear, and we tell our story. We let people know, listen, I'm going to bear witness to what Christ has done in my heart and life and pray that you will receive that as well. And we do what? We fulfill the prayer that says, Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, as we look into this rich, rich portion of your word, we realize it's very easy for many of us, Lord, to not be on the same page with you. That many of us may assume, Lord, that life is all about having our own kingdom, having our own way, being comfortable, pursuing the life of ease, of having our own will be done. But Lord, I pray that you would challenge us today to have our eyes lifted up to understand where you are, that you are seated in the position of highest honor and privilege, that you are indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, for many of us, it might be a day in which, as we come to your table, it might be a day in which we confess, Lord, that we, we have perhaps become a little lackadaisical in being involved in being on mission. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to repent of that and to have a heart that becomes burdened for people who are lost and motivated to be involved in sacrificially giving and serving and speaking and, and sharing our story with others and serving you in whatever way you call us to serve. So, Lord, today as we reflect on your love and of your completion of all that the Father sent you to do, Lord Jesus, may we get on the same page with you today. May we be filled with your Spirit and empowered to serve you and to be involved in seeing your kingdom established as we follow you, our King and Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.